Well, good morning, everyone. It seems that there is no other holiday like the Christmas holiday that is so closely tied to the fortunes of Christianity, does it? Um, although it's been a little bit quiet the, the last year or so, and I'm really grateful for that, but occasionally in the last maybe decade, every now and again, there'd be a skirmish that would rise up over the kind of cultural war over uh, Christmas. You guys remember that? Remember that? This year it's been really quiet, hasn't it? And I'm really grateful for that. But there was a couple of years ago that it got pretty intense, remember? That, that even the, the kind of holiday greeting you used revealed your allegiance onto what side of the culture war you existed on. You guys remember that? So, and if you were a Christian, you did not throw out a happy holidays, right? No, no, no. If you were a Christian, it was going to be Merry Christmas, and there was no question about it. And, and I remember, I think it was, I don't want to, uh, 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 this gets recorded, so I don't want to say, but there was a large retail chain that actually made the point of saying that all their employees would only say happy holidays. And I would remember being in that line, and there's this like poor teenage cash register young girl or guy having to be having to say happy holidays. And then occasionally there'd be a well-meaning Christian, but would come back like Merry Christmas, and then like taunting, waiting for them to reply Merry Christmas, right? Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and. And, you know, it was the kind of thing where if you didn't say Merry Christmas, if you're a Christian, you said Happy Holidays, it's like church discipline or something you have to worry about, and, and you weren't sure how to navigate these waters. And I remember, and the Grinches weren't any much better, right? So, so somebody would say, hey, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. See, I took Jesus out, what are you going to do about it? Happy Holidays. And, and for a while, it got pretty bad. This year, it's really quiet. I haven't heard any concern or controversy over the back and forth about whether you say happy holidays or Merry Christmas so you're not going to be disciplined at church or the ACLU is not going to sue you for whatever you say. But here's something that's interesting that most Christians don't realize. Do you know that for the first 200 years, the church or, and Christians did not even recognize, let alone celebrate, the birth of Christ? And it's actually understandable right? For one thing, everyone's born, right? Everyone gets born, but no one's ever died and was raised back to life again. So all for the two centuries, the early church and every Christian focused almost exclusively on the resurrection of Christ and His imminent return. So why fuss about humble beginnings when He's going to immediately return as the Lord of glory and establish the new heavens and earth, right? Well, it makes a lot of sense. But what happened was, as the return of Christ delayed and Jesus was not coming back as quickly as they thought, interest in his birth got more and more attention. Specifically, two historical factors radically changed this. And the first one was, as Christianity, this new movement became um, I began to spread, became more popular, more people converted by the thousands, so did the opposition. So about 177 AD, a, a, a pagan philosopher by the name of Celsus started to fl uh, not float the idea, he actually started to mock the fact that Jesus could be born of a virgin and said that Jesus was actually the result of an adulterous union, and Joseph, being the pious man that he was, turned Mary out, and so she lived a disgraceful life of, of, of poverty for her entire existence. Now, some of you may actually be saying, I think I've heard some of that recently, right? So in the last decade or so, there's been books that came out with that stuff. So this is not new material. This has been around for thousands of years. Secondly, 
Uh, there were some false teachers rising up within the church who were influenced by what's called Greek Gnosticism. And they believed that all the physical world was bad and only spiritual things were good. And so it's absurd that God would, would, would come down and become like a man. Jesus could not have been really physical, let alone human. That didn't make any sense. The whole point of life was to transcend this hard, wicked, evil, material world. So why would God descend and inhabit it? What's well, funny when you think about that in, in, in our kind of post-enlightenment pluralistic society, we struggle with the reality that Jesus actually could be God, but back then they struggled with the reality that Jesus could actually be a human being. And so you had these two major historical factors taking place, and the church had to begin to seriously think about Jesus' birth, and the attention really started to be given to Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2, where we have the recording of his birth. So about the year uh, 200 AD, uh, Tertullian was a church father and scholar. He pinned the birth of Jesus to roughly December 25th or January 6th, and he actually had some really good reasons for doing that. So, so what happened as a result, some of those dates sound obviously familiar to you. If you're part of the Western church, so all of Catholicism and all of Protestantism camped on December 25th, but the Eastern church, they all kind of clung to and camped to January 6th. And so back and forth it kind of went, was it December 25th or January 6th for about 1,800 years? And so that's where it is. The Western church settled on December 25th. The Eastern church settled on January 6th. The earliest recording we have of Christmas being celebrated on December 25th, and by celebrated, I don't mean in the kind of way we understand it now, but as a recognized uh, event by which Christians celebrated and had festivals, the earliest recording we have, December 25th in Rome, 336 A.D., that when the church kind of agreed on the details and then started to celebrate it. But keep something in mind. This is really important. The church celebrated the birth of Jesus and the significance of his birth almost primarily to ensure the significance of his life, death, and resurrection. So, so the reason Jesus making a big deal about his humanity and his birth was as a result of what I had talked about, but to ensure that what he did in his life, death, and resurrection was also significant and valued by all. And this can be easily missed when we look at Matthew 2 and Luke 2, because now thousands of years later, we primarily see those as the incarnation and Christmas and Jesus' birth, and we tend to miss that even in the text, Matthew and Luke they knew the significance of his birth related to his death, and we see it most clearly uh, in the gift of the wise men, don't we? Now, for us kind of moderns, that even the symbolism of those gifts is lost. We look at those gifts, and in our modern culture, we say gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's kind of like money, essential oils, and perfume, right? We look at those as just regular gifts, but they had huge symbolism. The gold is easy, right? What does the gold indicate? his royalty, his kingship. The frankincense, the frankincense pointed to his priestly role. So the gold pointed to his role as king. The frankincense pointed to his priestly role in the Old Testament, specifically Exodus chapter 30. Frankincense is the only incense that the priests, the Levitical priests, were allowed to use around the temple and in the altar, particularly with the sacrifices. And the myrrh was used as a spice to embalm the deceased. 
And so the gold and the frankincense and myrrh pointed to his kingly role, his priestly role to reconcile God and man and his atoning death. And so what our passage this morning, Philippians 2.8, Philippians 2.8 makes explicit what Matthew 2 and Luke 2 strongly imply, and that is that Jesus was born to die. Philippians 2.8, Joan read it to you. Let me read just that verse to you. Paul writes, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a, a Persian proverb that talks about a servant who is sent by his master to the marketplace. And the bustle of a busy market, the servant turns and sees death. As their eyes meet, death makes a gesture towards him. It's certain that death is pursuing him, the terrified servant races back home and he pleads with the master that the master lend him a horse so that he can flee and ride to Samara to escape death. The master gives the servant the horse, and after a few moments, the servant is riding as fast as he can to the city of Samara. Meanwhile, the master returns to the market where he too sees death. Why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant this morning? He says, oh no, replies death. That wasn't a threatening gesture. I I was merely surprised to see him here, for I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. So so the parable, the point of the parable is that none of us can escape death. It is inevitable. Diet and exercise only go so far, right? The new trend amongst the, the, the tech billionaires, cryonic freezing will not help. When death comes, nothing can stop it. No one, the billions of people who lived on this planet, not a single man, woman, or child is not subject to the authority of death. No one except Jesus Christ. This is a great irony about Christmas that I find, and that is all of humanity is subject to death, but not a single one of us were born for it. Jesus is the only one who is not subject to death, but yet He alone was born for it. It's a huge irony in in the Christmas story. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, 12, that death has come into this world because of sin. It's fascinating, friends. I, I did some research on death this week, and I was surprised how little we know about death. How, how, why we die. There are no good explanations for it. The whole theory of evolution tells us that death should not be a part of our reality at this point in our evolutionary process. Nobody knows why we die, but the Scripture makes it very clear that death is here because sin was brought into the world. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and 6, verse 23, it says, because all have sinned, Therefore, all must die. Yet Jesus never sinned. As a matter of fact, Jesus had life itself within him. In John chapter 5, verse 26, Jesus said, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. 
Jesus had more than, in li- more than enough life in himself to overcome death. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he proved it immediately by raising Lazarus from the grave. Yet in our passage in Philippians 2, Paul writes that Jesus became obedient to the point of death. Jesus submitted to its claim and heeded its call. So I just have one question I want us to answer this morning. And don't get too excited. That doesn't mean it's a short sermon. I'm, I'm, I'm still in my introduction right here. So one question we need to answer with all that we just talked about right now, the question is this, why? With all that we've just laid out, why did Jesus die? Why was he born to die? That's an important question. And and I want to answer it from two uh, perspectives. I want to answer the question, why was Jesus born to die, from the perspective or or, or for the sake of a non-Christian, right? And then I want to answer the question, why did Jesus die? Why was he born to die for the sake of a Christian? Because we're going to come at that from two distinct ways, although the answers are going to be very similar. I want to address them from two different ways. And the first reason, or the first way of answering it, why, did you, why was Jesus born to die from the, from the perspective of a non-Christian is important, and, and this is why. When you think about our society growing increasingly pluralistic and increasingly postmodern, um, we become increasingly more and more like the first century uh, culture. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of differences there. But the more pluralistic we get, the more postmodern we become, we actually become, in many critical ways, more like the, fir- the culture of the first century, which means that the gospel message is increasingly strange to people's ears. The more pluralistic we become, the more postmodern, the more truth can be malleable and fluid, the more strange the gospel message is going to sound as it was in the first century. A savior who dies for people is becoming a scandal again, just like it was 2,000 years ago, but for very, very different reasons. In ancient times, Christianity was rejected for the simple reason Who wants to follow a God who is so weak that he dies? Today, Christianity is often rejected for an equally simple reason. Who wants to follow a God that demands anyone should die? So the reasons somewhat on the surface seem very different, but the engine that drives it is very similar. Who would follow a God so weak that he dies on a cross? Who would follow a God so weak that he demands anyone should die? How barbaric is that? How, how, how primitive is that, let alone his own son? I mean, that's like divine child abuse. Maybe you've read some of these things by the new atheists. This is the, isn't this the reason why we as a modern society are trying to move beyond religion, all this death and punishment and wrath and all these outdated notions? It seems absurd and ridiculous. We hear these things in our culture, but we actually have to respond by looking at, and at a certain from a modern sensibilities, you can understand why people may think this, that God would send his son to die and, and such a horrible death so that sin can be atoned for, all this bloodshed. Can there be a better way? You got to look at it from a different perspective. Let's look at it from this perspective. If you hope in the realities of justice and mercy 
If you hope that justice and mercy are actually real things in this world, that ultimately all the wrongs of this world are going to be made right, everything wrong and and, and the injustice and the crime and all the heartache of this world is going to be made right, and that in the end kindness prevails and not hatred and darkness, if you believe in justice and mercy, then Jesus has to die. That's just the reality. Let me explain this a bit more. And I'm going to explain this from just, I think, a very logical way to think through this. If justice is real, and if it's something that we actually believe in, then it follows that all crimes need to be punished, shouldn't they? Not just the crimes that that you think are wrong or, or, or the criminals that you believe should be punished, but if we believe in justice, then all crime, the ones you think are crimes or the ones you don't agree with are crimes, crime has to be answered for. It has to be punished. We can't ignore laws when they get broken. We can't say it's all right, right? Any society, any individual that does so either does not understand the nature of justice or doesn't appreciate the virtue of justice. But either one has to happen. If justice is real, crimes have to be punished. But punishment isn't enough. It's not just that there must be punishment. There must be punishment that fits the crime, right? The greater the crime, the greater the offense, the greater the punishment must be. We naturally, morally, intuitively feel these things. There's been some stories in the news about judges handing out completely lax sentences on on people who have committed atrocities against uh, uh, women or or all kinds of things, and then moral outrage has come about because the punishment has not fit the crime, and so therefore there's no justice. So if you believe in justice, there needs to be punishment, but a punishment that fits the crime. Finally, the degree of offense is in direct proportion to the one or the object offended, right? So the degree of the offense is in direct proportion to the, kind of the crime, to the object or the one who has been offended. This is all common sense understanding of justice and as you think it through clearly. There's nothing about this that we have to go to a Bible verse. We can intuitively understand these things. Now let me bring the Bible into this. The Bible, as we talked about a little while ago and a few weeks ago, teaches that sin is rebellion, that sin is apathy or a willful ignorance or evil and a whole host of other things, and the object of sin or that that offense is always towards God. The rebellion, the apathy, the willful ignorance, and the object is always toward God. Let me illustrate that with you. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, when David admitted his guilt in killing Uriah, this is what he said. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. When he killed Uriah, right, he recognized that his sin, of course it was against Uriah, but David recognized first and foremost that he had sinned against God himself. And if you were here for our series in the Ten Commandments, you know very clearly that, that David violated one of God's commands. Look at Genesis chapter 39, I think it's verse 9, when Joseph is rejecting Potiphar's wife because she wants to have an adulterous affair, Joseph says, he says, this is Joseph, he's not greater in this house, there is no one greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, speaking to Potiphar's wife, because you are his wife. 
how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, was Joseph saying that this would not, if I were to commit adultery with you, this would not be an offense against your husband. It's only against God. That's not what he's saying. Just like David's not saying in some way he didn't sin against Uriah. But both David and Joseph understand first and foremost that sin is always against God before it is against man. As a matter of fact, friends, the reason it is wrong towards man is because in some way every single sin defies God's character, and as a result of that defying of His holy character, it will bring harm to others. That was one of the principal messages that we got from our study of the Ten Commandments. Romans, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Ezekiel chapter 18, if you're a note taker, Romans 6.23 says that the punishment for sin must be death because sin is the greatest offense against the greatest object, God Himself. And Romans 3.23 says, all of us have sinned. So you can connect the dots. What does that then mean? All of us must die. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. So if you believe in justice, then the crime of sin has to be answered for. It must be punished. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, uh, blood is in, in the New Testament a metonym for death, without death there will be no forgiveness for sin because the sin, the crime, has to be punished and the punishment must fit the crime. The reason Jesus was born to die was to uphold justice because God is just. But because God is also merciful, this is another reason Jesus had to die. In fact, if God wasn't merciful, then Jesus wouldn't have to die. If God was just just, then Jesus would be okay. But because God is both just and merciful, Jesus had to die. It was God's mercy as much as His justice that put Jesus on the cross. Now, that doesn't seem very merciful to Jesus for sure, but it's unbelievable mercy to you and to I. So, if you believe in the notions of, of justice and mercy, Jesus has to die. Now, I want you to kind of conceptually hold on to that, because then I'm going to transition to talk about the, the Christian view of why Jesus had to die, but I need you to hold on to some of these elements, right, because I need, need, I need to move on from that. But I do want to address this. You might be sitting there thinking, I don't agree. I, I think death for a penalty like sin is way inappropriate. That just does not seem to fit to me. That's, that, I, I can understand that perspective. But I want you to consider this for a moment. Jesus doesn't share your opinion. Now, I don't mean that I just poke you in the eye with that, like, man, Jesus, you know, Jesus disagrees with you. The reason I say Jesus doesn't share your opinion is because he willingly, look at our text, Philippians 2.8, he willingly laid his life down. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. In no area of the New Testament does Jesus ever argue the inappropriate penalty for the crime of sin. 
Now he does actually ask God, hey, if there's another way here, if there's a plan B you forgot to tell me about, I'm all in on that. We talked about that in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew, uh, I think it's 26. But it happens. I'm not sure if it's Matthew. But, But the point is, Jesus never argues the appropriate nature of his death for the penalty of sin. But he does say, if there's another way to do this, let's do it. So you may say, wait, sin, death for sin, that's not, that's inappropriate. But Jesus never argued that. He humbled himself to the point of death. No one took his life. Not Rome, not the Jewish leaders, not Pilate, not Herod, not Caiaphas, not the League of Pharisees. No one took his life. He willingly gave it up because he knew the penalty, the crime had to be paid for. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 10, verse 17 to 18, Jesus said this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. You may not recognize the significance of the penalty of sin, But Jesus clearly did, and he laid down his life in exchange for it. But Jesus was also born to die because in order to ultimately fulfill the justice and mercy of God, we needed more than a suitable sacrifice, and that's kind of what what, uh, Dr. Oaks talked about last week about Jesus having to be human, but we needed something more than a suitable sacrifice, being human. We needed a willing sacrifice as well. And the willingness of Jesus is really at the heart of our Advent passage this year of, of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This, this other-centered, self-sacrificial, servant-mindedness that's, that makes the engine of this passage shows the willingness of Christ. And verse 8 especially finds its roots, I think, in, in, in the Old Testament in Isaiah. So keep your finger in Philippians and go back with me to the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah. Now, if you're using a pew Bible, that's going to be on page 614. Isaiah chapter 53. I want to read a, a very significant passage to you that, that, that is pushing this argument forward. Isaiah chapter 53 is just the most, I mean, talk about the fly in the ointment for, for, for the Jew to, to have to wrestle through who, how is God's salvation going to happen. To this day, if you have Jewish friends and you're sharing the gospel with them, you got to take them to Isaiah 53 and just humbly ask them, how are you making sense of this passage in light of what you believe and especially in light of what the Christians teach, right? So let me just read to you a couple verses from Isaiah 53. Isaiah writes this, speaking of this, this suffering servant to come. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Friends, 
why did Jesus have to die? So we've been talking about from a non-Christian perspective to think it through. Well, it's because the virtues of justice and mercy must be upheld. And in order for those to happen in any ultimate sense, so that any relative justice and mercy is upheld, Jesus must die to satisfy justice and mercy. We'll button that up later. Let's talk about why Jesus has to die from, from those of you who may know more about the Bible. So kind of part two on this. Isaiah sets it up for us. The, the many long years, if you're familiar with the Bible in the Old Testament, the, this period where God allowed an animal sacrifice to pay the price of sin, sacrifice and the temple and all that makes up a big part of the Old Testament. God at that time, through all these events, through those institutions, was driving home the point that there could be, in, in his kind of divine purposes, a transfer of our guilt and sin from, from our head to the head of someone else, an innocent, the head of an innocent. And so you see this all through the Old Testament. Whenever a sinner brought his animal to, to the altar and laid his hands on the head of the beast in accordance with uh, Leviticus 1, 3, 4, and then a little bit in Leviticus 16, when that was done, and the priests announced the kind of the, this transference, the, said the prayer, the message was plain. This stands in my place. This animal now, the sin, the blood upon my hands, I'm putting upon him or her, whatever the case might be. And that animal bore their sin. And friends, when you think about, yes, yes, it's barbaric, it's gross, the blood, the crying, the screaming of the animal, it's supposed to be. That's the price of sin. That's the price of our rebellion. There's no way to sanitize it. There's no way to precious moments it and make it cute, right? It, it is disgusting. It is to make you go, ugh. But, but to go the full distance and say, that's because of me this is happening. But in God's grace, this animal can, can suffer in my place. But the substitution was incomplete because the citadel of sin, the fortress of sin in the human will was unrepresented in the un, this uncomprehending and unconsenting animal. So the very citadel of our sinfulness, our will, was not being represented by the animal. Isaiah, he foresaw that the perfect man could be the perfect substitute, and at the heart of that perfection was a willing heart to pay the price and do the will of God, right? So uh, you can leave Isaiah, jump over to uh, Psalm 40, okay, and that's page 468 if you're using a pew Bible, pew Bible, 468, Psalm 40, and this is a, a familiar psalm that David wrote, and we're just going to look at a couple verses in it, and then what I want you to do is, because friends, the Bible has to interpret the Bible, I'm going to keep us in Psalm, and then jump over to the book of Hebrews, to show you how the New Testament, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understands Psalm and applies it to Jesus. Okay, so Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, this is what David writes. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. 
burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, is David contradicting the entire sacrificial system? No, he's not. He's simply getting that, that God is not, oh, I'm so happy to watch all these animals die. That's all I want. That's not it. David gets that this isn't what you want. It's a necessary requirement to bring the relationship, but you want more than just sacrifices and these, these things, okay? Got it? So, so it's not contradicting the whole temple system, but he's understanding what God really wants. Now keep your finger in Psalm 40 and jump over with me to Hebrews 10. That's um, page 1006 in the Pew Bible, if you're using a Pew Bible. Hebrews 10 is just a fascinating book talking about um, really the superiority of Christ. And I want to read these 10 verses because it's so powerful. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 10. Okay? And keep your finger in Psalm 40. The writer of Hebrews says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So you see what he's saying. The, the writer is saying all those sacrifices from all that time period, they, they were helpful in a sense, but they were never the real deal because every year you had to keep doing it. And then he says, because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But God in his graciousness and his mercy allowed the sacrifice, knowing one day the perfect sacrifice was coming. And so the writer is setting us up beautifully for what Jesus did. Look at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, this is what Christ said. Does it sound familiar? Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. It's exactly from Psalm 40. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews is saying, when Christ came into the world, this is when he said it. He says, this is what I desire to do. I'm willingly coming to be like those sacrificial animals. Verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Verse 9, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first, the old covenant, the old way of doing things to, in order to establish the second, the new covenant. Verse 10, and by that will, we have been sanctified. We have been saved through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Jesus was born to die, to be the culmination of all the long years of sacrifice, reminding us that sin has to be punished, and it's a horrible punishment. It's a visceral, disgusting, gut-wrenching experience. It is bad. 
In verse 5, the writer of the Hebrews brings our attention to the, to the incarnation of Christ, in particular at Advent. Christ came into the world, a body prepared for me that started as a baby in a manger. Think of it. Think of it. The infinite becomes an infant. The maker became a man. The divine so utterly dependent on others. Jesus was born to die because justice and mercy must be upheld. In order for justice and mercy to be upheld, Jesus needed to be the perfect, sacrificial, willing sacrifice on our behalf so that justice and mercy would prevail, sin could be judged, and sinners could be saved. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why Jesus had to be born, so He could die. C.S. Lewis, need to wrap this up soon, is, uh, writes in his book, Miracles, that the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. And I'm just trying to whet your appetite for what we're going to get into next week with Dr. Rob Lister, uh, all this amazingness that, that Jesus coming down does for us. But Lewis writes it this way, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. We see that in Philippians 2 as well. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture, he writes, of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift he must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through the green and warm water into the black and cold water, down to the increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. Then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till he suddenly breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. Friends, Christmas and its corresponding event, Easter, are the ultimate of ironies, aren't they? The Lord of glory, born in a manger to die on a cross. Our verse, Philippians 2.8, alludes to both of these occasions. I don't know if you see that in there. It says, being found in human form, so from heaven to earth, what we celebrate at Christmas, his incarnation, the advent, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death upon a cross, his crucifixion. As we close our service, we are, we're going to sing a, a, a hymn. Some of you may be familiar with it. Who is he in yonder stall? And, and the verses are beautiful because they capture both of these bookends. Uh, verse 1 says, who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Well, that's the incarnation, right? And then a later verse says, who is he on yonder tree dies in grief and agony? Well, that's the crucifixion. The answer to both, the answer to that, that both those questions is found in the refrain that we're going to be singing, tis the Lord, O wondrous story, tis the Lord, the King of glory. What should be our response? What's the most rational response to that hymn? The only rational response could be, it's, it's right there in the hymn itself, at His feet 
we humbly fall, it is worship. Crown him, crown him Lord of all. The most rational response is that you make Jesus your king. You make Jesus your king in every aspect of your life. Kings do not ask permission, friends. They tell you what to do, and you obey. You don't get a word edgewise. You make Jesus king in all aspects of your life, in the way you live, the way you spend your life, your time, every element of it. The only rational response is we make Him king. Let's pray. Father, we come before You celebrating Advent remembering that Jesus was born to die so that we can be reconciled to You. We are that precious thing that in Lewis's metaphor, we, we are that beautiful pearl that the diver swims to the deepest blackness and the depths of, of coldness and darkness to bring up into color and light. Would You be so kind as to transform our hearts to see this reality that the only rational response is to worship and make You our King. And we'll thank you for it. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.